Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Bill Hayes, whose latest book is Insomniac City. Coming out also is a collection of photography called How New York Breaks Your Heart, Bill Hayes is the author of three other books, Sleep Demons, Five Courts, and The Anatomist, and the co-editor of a book called The River of Consciousness by Oliver Sacks. And we're going to talk about those three books, mm-hmm. the two new ones by you mm-hmm. and the Oliver Sacks book. But first of all, you would stop writing, other than an occasional essay in the mm-hmm. New York Times, in fact, you have an essay called about not writing. <laughs> and then after Oliver Sacks died, you started Insomniac City. So what's the origin of that? What prompted you to suddenly start writing again? It's a book I had been thinking about in a certain way for years. I moved to New York in 2009 from San Francisco. This was my home for about 25 years. And when I moved to New York at age 48, I did begin to write short pieces about life in New York and published a few of them in the New York Times and had in the back of my mind that I might write a memoir about life in New York. Oliver and I did meet and fall in love shortly after I moved there, but that wasn't the plan at the outset, that that part of the story would be in Insomniac City. It was only after his death that I began really thinking about the story of my life in New York, and that is... uh, the story of New York itself and how I experienced it, but also my life with Oliver. So I um, began thinking about this book and knew that it would probably include photography as well because photography had become a big part of my life as an artist in New York City. When you take your photos, are they on your iPhone? Are they with a camera? I use a camera, a digital camera, and it really, it, it started here in San Francisco. I'd never done photography, except for a little bit in high school where I learned how to print and develop film. But it was in 2007, after the death of my longtime partner, Steve, that I bought a little digital camera. It was as big as a flip phone. And this was really before people commonly use cell phones for photographs. And it was small enough to slip into a pocket and I'd walk around the streets of San Francisco and take pictures. But it wasn't something I pursued seriously. It was really when I moved to New York, and the camera became a way for me to explore the neighborhoods of New York City. I'd hop on a subway, go to a part of New York I didn't know, and I was always drawn to taking portraits. i take pictures of people. And I noticed um, that the beginning of Insomniac City is actually about grief, what you Mm -hmm. experienced, because your partner was a couple of years younger than you. Right, that's right. His name was Steve, and he was two years younger than me. We'd been together a long time, about 17 years, and he died unexpectedly, very suddenly, of a heart attack in bed beside me in the fall of 2006. And it was shattering. It eventually prompted my move to New York. It took me a little while to get myself together and figure out what's next. And I realized I really needed 
to start fresh, to start over. So I moved to New York. Speed Demons is, in a way, a little bit about him because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. about HIV and AIDS, mm-hmm. and he dealt with it for many years. He was he positive and sick, and you're negative. Right. You're right. Steve is in Sleep Demons, my first book, as well as in Five Quarts, my second book, which is about the history of human blood. He did have HIV, and we together as a couple went through all those ups and downs of the early years of the epidemic and different medications and the protease inhibitor drugs, the cocktails came at just the right time to really almost literally save his life. And so he did enjoy several years of of good health and fit health, which is why his heart attack, the sudden heart attack, was really so shocking and, and sort of traumatic. That might have been a relationship between all the drugs and all the years of... Yes, perhaps, yes. That wasn't proven, but it was, yes, I think that is quite possible. So, of course, you were a wreck for a while. I was a wreck for a while, but uh, realized I really needed to start my life fresh, start over. And I'd always wanted to live in New York. I never had. I'd been there a lot because my books would take me there. My agent, my editor were there. But uh, I bought a one-way ticket and moved in spring of 2009, and I fell in love so in a way, Insomniac City is a kind of love letter to New York. Um, I really had a romance with New York, and then, to my surprise, a romance with Oliver Sacks. You and Steve had met Oliver Sacks before, correct? Actually, not Steve and I. I met Oliver first via a letter. I was um, here in San Francisco in 2008, and my book, The Anatomist, had come out a couple of months before. And one day, I get a letter in the mail, return address, Oliver Sacks, New York, New York. <laughs> It was a very cordial, handwritten letter, handwritten with a fountain pen, saying he'd read my book, The Anatomist, enjoyed it very much. He told me a little story about how he had grown up in a family of physicians with the book Grey's Anatomy, which is what my book was about. I was very surprised and flattered. Of course, I knew his work. I'd read his books. And what does one do? I wrote a letter back. And then he wrote a letter back to me. Were these snail mail letters? Snail mail, yes. Really? Snail mail. And in fact, Oliver, in all our years together, he never used a computer. He never wrote an email in his life or a text. The apartment in New York was virtually free of any technology. I should add, he did have an assistant in a separate office who who could send email on his behalf and receive email. And she was computer savvy in a way that Oliver never was. He called himself computer illiterate. Bill Hayes, so... You get the letter, you write mm-hmm. back a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Had you lost touch when Steve died? This was after Steve's death that I first got the letter from Oliver. So it was after that. But my decision to move to New York didn't, didn't have to do with Oliver Sachs. Again, I was already thinking about making a move, starting over. We had this very cordial kind of professional correspondence. But you know nothing about him or his sexuality. No. No. When I moved there, I also found an apartment in the West Village. He lived in the West Village, and we began to see each other quite a lot and got very well acquainted and fell in love fairly quickly. Did your gaydar go off when you met him? Yes. Yes. And to back up, we did meet on a visit to New York when I was still planning to move there and trying to find a job and trying to find an apartment. We met in person and had lunch. And yes, there was definitely some chemistry. Definitely. You kind of sussed that out early on, but of course he's 30 years older than you Yeah, too. he was uh, quite a bit older, and as I later learned, he'd never been in a romantic or domestic relationship in his life. He was extremely private about his sexuality. 
so private that that really did not come out publicly until his autobiography was published in spring of 2015, the last year of his life. So this was a very, very private man. What's curious is that he'd spent his life and created a reputation as a neurologist and Mm -hmm. somebody who had insight into psychology, and yet he'd never been intimate. Well, there are various reasons for that, um, many of which he sort of explains and describes in his autobiography, including a very harsh and painful reaction from his mother in particular when she questioned him about his sexuality at age 18. And she cursed him and said, I wish you had never been born. It was very wounding. There was a certain homophobia at that time in his culture, in his generation. But then, too, I think one needs to remember that Oliver devoted his life, his much of his adult life, to his patients and his practice and his thinking and his writing and his books. So um, he took a different path than most people took, I guess, and was very occupied with his work. Did he ever talk to you about fame and how he became famous? Sure, absolutely. It kind of puzzled him. He had a great understanding of evolution, evolutionary biology, which is one of the subjects of this new book of his, The River of Consciousness, and the concept of chance and accident and how chance plays a role in natural selection. And I think in a certain way, he could apply this to himself and his fame or his celebrity. He felt in a certain way it was sort of chance that beginning with his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, now a classic, published in 1985, that that book would sort of come out of nowhere and become a bestseller. It appeared one weekend on the New York Times bestseller list, and he was very surprised. It's true that he had written two books before that, including the book Awakenings, which was later made into a film. But Awakenings, when it came out, wasn't a bestseller. It probably did better in the UK or in England than it did in the US. So it really was with the man who mistook his wife for a hat that he became famous and quickly. He embraced it in a way, and he had such a a sort of charming, lovable personality that people really took to him. A lot of people got to know him through his radio interviews. He had a great voice. At the same time, Oliver was very, very shy, very shy which is another reason he didn't get involved in romantic relationships. He was just a very shy guy. So the fame also puzzled him and made him uncomfortable, too. A friend of mine, when we were talking uh, last week about this book, he said that he'd seen that 1991 panel discussion, and that's where he got into Oliver Sacks. And then I mentioned to him that in River of Consciousness, that's the, in the right. introduction, right. that apparently that 1991 panel mm-hmm. somehow must have turned a lot of people's heads. Yeah, a Dutch filmmaker put this together and brought together great thinkers, each in their own field, Oliver Sacks, Stephen Jay Gould, Freeman Dyson, and others. It was a very clever concept, brought them together they'd never met, and then put them on a panel together and just let them have a conversation about big questions, the meaning of life, about evolution, creativity, time, memory. It was then televised as a series and also seen on PBS, I believe, and made into a book. And what struck many people was how Oliver Sacks could sort of move among all the different disciplines. Obviously, he was very knowledgeable about neurology and medicine, but he was also passionate and knowledgeable about biology, evolution, physics, chemistry 
many subjects. Bill Hayes, what I noticed in Insomniac City, just in your conversations, Mm -hmm. is that it wasn't merely he was interested in these things, but when he talked about them, he sounded like a poet. Yeah, it's really true. That's well put. He did have uh, a poet in him, and he was a true romantic, um, a romantic about science and about life. In some ways, I think, during his life, his writing was a little bit underrated. You know, he can be a very poetic and lyrical writer. We see that in the new book, The River of Consciousness, but also in past books as well. Maybe one thing to make clear about Insomniac City It is a memoir both about my life in New York and um, moving there at 48 and having encounters and experiences with people on the streets of New York, and then also about my life with Oliver. And much of the life with Oliver is told in this book through journal entries. Oliver, just weeks after I arrived in New York, I think he could see how delighted I was with the city and was enjoying getting to know New York through my eyes. And one day, just a couple weeks after I arrived, he said to me, Billy, you must keep a journal. You must keep a journal. And it was less a suggestion than an instruction. And I started keeping a journal and mostly writing about my experiences and episodes and little stories that I would often tell to him, but also recording or getting down on paper our own conversations and scenes from our life. So those scenes and those conversations come into Insomniac City. Wandering around the city is fine, but mm-hmm. when you're dealing with somebody as extraordinary as Oliver Sacks, he kind of takes over the book, whether you expect it or not. Yeah. Yeah, it was a challenge with a character like Oliver Sacks to try to keep the balance between that story and the other story. I said to someone recently, Oliver was eminently chronically quotable. The kinds of things he says that are in this book just came out of his mouth you know, every day, whether it was a line that was deeply profound or thoughtful or also funny. He could be extremely funny or entire conversations. And I think what comes through, or I, what I hope comes through in the conversations between Oliver and me in this book is that he was obviously a deeply knowledgeable, brilliant, brilliant man, but also as curious as a little boy and was not pretentious. He was modest and curious enough to want to know what other people thought too. So it's not just Oliver lecturing, but also saying, Billy, what do you think? How do you feel about that? Do you agree? It's sort of like a mental synesthesia. It's like taking different elements together and seeing them through new senses. And that's what I got. Yeah, absolutely. There's a sequence where you're telling the story about what happened years ago And somebody walks out and just sees him lying flat on the ground Mm -hmm. and asks him what it is. And he's going, I want to see what it's like to be a tulip or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great story. And I didn't hear this story till after much later. But, uh, yeah, it was the uh, husband of one of his nieces who came to visit the Sachs household. And he saw this very large bearded man lying on the ground in the garden. And he had gone into the home, and when Oliver stumbled back into the house, he said, what were you doing out there, Oliver? And Oliver said, trying to see what it's like to be a rose. He was in the rose garden. Just Very strange. Well, very curious and very observant. And what, I'm glad, actually glad you brought that story up, because it's, it's very Oliver, because it's so quirky and sort of in his own head and in his own world. But then it kind of comes full circle. 
the opening chapter of this new book, The River of Consciousness, is called Darwin and the Meaning of Flowers. And it's a very erudite but also delightful look at Charles Darwin and Darwin's work on flowers and orchids and how his work on orchids and and flowers helped to bolster his argument that he'd already made in The Origin of Species. So Oliver in this chapter or this essay of the book is really bringing to light a, a part of Darwin's story that isn't that well known. And I think Oliver definitely shared Darwin's love of botany and flowers and ferns especially. He loved ferns. I keep thinking that someone who spends their life thinking outside of the box Mm -hmm. is also going to be somebody who could figure out the story of the people in Awakenings. Mm -hmm. I mean, making connections that no one else would make. Well, that's a really good point. He was able to make those connections, and he did have, we were talking about him having a bit of the poet in him. I think he definitely had the soul of a philosopher, too, and read very deeply in philosophy and in all different fields. And so he was able to make these connections that not just anyone could make. And when he found himself in this chronic disease hospital in the Bronx in the early 60s, early to late 60s, these patients who seemed to be in these strange, asleep, coma-like states, he was able to make associations and investigations and consider the possibility of, as he put it, awakening them using the drug L-DOPA. You're listening to an interview with Bill Hayes, who is the co-editor of The River of Consciousness by Oliver Sacks, also the author of recent book, Insomniac City, New York Oliver and Me, and a photography book, 150 Photographs of New Yorkers. Is Oliver in that book, by the way? There is one picture of Oliver. The book is called How New York Breaks Your Heart. It's all street photography, both black and white in color. And there is one photograph of Oliver, but it is on the street, on the streets of New York. Did Oliver encourage you in any way to take those pictures of people on the street? Great question. Yeah, he did. I had already begun doing it. I'd done a little bit here in San Francisco, and then it was just kind of a natural instinct of mine to take pictures. He knew a lot about photography, as you know, as much as he knew about a lot of different things. He also knew a lot about the history of music, but he had loved photography as a boy. He loved chemistry, so the sort of chemistry of developing and printing film interested him very much, and he went through a long phase of taking photographs. He tended to prefer landscape photography. He was too shy, I think, to do the kind of street photography I did. But when I started doing it and showing him and sort of bringing these pictures home, just like I brought stories home, he definitely encouraged me. He also had a critical eye. So he could say to me what he thought was a good picture versus a mediocre picture or a picture that didn't work. Sometimes we would go on walks together, especially in the village, and I'd have my camera and sometimes I'd say, Oliver, I, got, I have to take a picture of that person or that scene. I'd see something. And he would rest against a fence or whatever and wait for me while I did my thing and came back. And he was amazed that I could do that. We just had different temperaments in approaching people. So he enjoyed it, I think. Well, it sounds as if you can't live with some, well, you didn't actually live together, but you lived in the same building and you were together for several years. Mm-hmm. You can't do that without somehow changing yourself. 
So two questions about that. How did your photography change by virtue of being with Oliver? But more importantly, how did your writing change? I think my writing really did change. We talked a very little bit at the beginning of this about my own episodes of not writing. I've gone through years of not writing, and I'm kind of a believer in the theory of crop rotation, that it's okay to stop for a while and move to something else. For me, that has been photography. And when I came back to writing, watching Oliver, being with Oliver, I think what I noticed and tried to absorb and enjoy was just the joy, the pleasure he took in writing. By the time we met and were together, writing was just something that gave him so much pleasure and joy. He had pretty much retired from practice. He was in his late 70s. This was something he could do day and night. So I think that very concept sort of a good model for me, whereas before in my earlier books, writing had seemed more torturous. How about the way you view the world and write it down? Again, it was he who instructed and encouraged me to start a journal. Journal keeping was something that Oliver did throughout his life. In his archive, we have nearly a thousand journals that he kept from his teenage years until the very, very end, the last weeks of his life. So part of it was encouraging me to keep a journal, to keep notes in whatever form that would be, scraps on paper, an actual book, or on, on a computer or a laptop. For Oliver, writing was another form of thinking. So it's not that he went back and read his journals. I don't, he hardly ever did. Or that he expected I would do the same, or he would have expected that I would write this book and incorporate a lot of that writing into it. But the very act of writing itself as I said, was a form of thinking for him. That had a big influence for me, on me. I'd never been with someone. I'd never, you know, I'd never known someone for whom thinking was such an important activity. And he would think while he swam, he would think while he walked and while he wrote, but also just taking time to just think things through. Both of you were physical exercise buffs. That's right. That was something we both loved. He was a great swimmer, and we would swim together usually three times a week at a beautiful pool in Chelsea. Uh, We also took a lot of walks together. And then as a young man, this was long before we met, Oliver was quite the weightlifter, set some records in California for the squat, and had been a bicyclist and motorcyclist. So he's a very physical, physical guy. And I've always been interested in exercise and in the human body. So although I did not take the path that Oliver did of becoming a doctor, I've always been interested in the body, and that has led me to some of my books, including The Anatomist and Sleep Demons. Which is about Gray's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. A question about that, skipping around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the book more or less tries to deal with the fact that we know very little about it, What was Oliver's view on Gray and the anatomy? One of the reasons he enjoyed it and he wrote that letter to me was that he'd grown up with that book. There was a copy of Gray's Anatomy in his household, and he studied the illustrations and practically had them memorized. And I think he told me that one of his first published pieces was a book review of one of the editions of Gray's Anatomy. Gray's Anatomy, of course, has gone through many editions over the years. It's still in print with barely a trace or probably not any trace of the original writing. So he had a special affection for Gray's Anatomy. Like most people, he knew nothing about Gray. Who was Henry Gray? And that was the question 
that prompted my writing that book. How did that come to you? What prompted you to start going, who the heck is this guy? Well, now, talking to you today and thinking about Oliver, I would say chance. Chance played a role. It was an accident. I was actually reviewing proofs or galleys for my second book, which is called Five Quartz, and there was some question about an artery in the human body. And I had a copy of Grey's Anatomy, which I'd been carrying around since college, probably. So I took out my copy of Grey's Anatomy to check the spelling, let's say, of an artery, and then was putting it back on the shelf, when suddenly, for some reason, I pulled it back out, and I just looked at the cover, and I said to myself internally, I wonder who wrote this? Who wrote this book? And I opened it up thinking I'd find something about the author on the jacket or in the back of the book, and there was nothing except his name, Henry Gray. I remember going to the computer in my apartment and checking the library catalog for the San Francisco Public Library and thinking there must be a biography of Henry Gray, but there wasn't. And that was the moment when the sort of the light bulb switched on, and I thought, aha, maybe I could write a biography of Henry Gray. And that was the original impetus What I later discovered was that there was another Henry, another anatomist named Henry Van Dyke Carter, who did the illustrations for the book, the illustrations for which the book is especially famous and loved not only by doctors, but by artists. So I tracked down the stories of the two Henrys, Henry Gray and Henry Van Dyke Carter, and in the process also learned a lot about anatomy myself. I attended anatomy classes at UCSF. And at that time, were you working? By that time, no, I was full-time writing, freelance writing. I did have a partner, Steve, who we've talked about. So being in a couple made supporting myself financially a little bit easier. And I was able just to, to work on those books. But after The Anatomist came out in 2008, and this was after Steve's death, I moved to New York. But when I moved to New York, I had to get a job. I couldn't just support myself as a writer, a freelance writer in New York City. So I got a full-time job and worked at a nonprofit in New York until 2013. Bill Hayes, had you always planned on being a writer? There's nothing online about you. Yeah, I'd say looking back, I did. I can't say exactly when the notion and the, the image came into my mind, but I always loved writing and reading, and it was something I was had some talent. In. And this was in, I would say, really in high school, early years of high school. Where was that? This was in a, a smallish town in Washington State, Spokane, Washington, eastern Washington. For me, high school was a very wonderful and impressionable period in my life. I happened to have really wonderful English teachers, and one in particular, Mr. Arnold, Mark Arnold, who had a creative writing group, and we would meet at his house and share poetry and fiction and whatever we were working on. And that kind of encouragement was really important and helped me identify myself, even at that young age, as I'm a writer, I'm a poet. That was what I thought I would be. I pursued it. You know, I got an English degree in college, took jobs, worked full-time, worked at various wonderful nonprofits here in the Bay Area, San Francisco AIDS Foundation, Museum of Modern Art, the library, all the while writing and freelance writing and focusing on the personal essay as a form that I wanted to try to really excel at. What prompted the move to San Francisco? Coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was gay. I um, actually had gone to college in Northern California at Santa Clara University. I knew I was gay, but this is 1983, very different time. I uh, moved to Seattle where some of my sisters lived. I have five sisters. And, you know, quietly 
gradually came out to them and to friends and then eventually to my parents. And um, by then it was 1985 and I was ready to bolt. <laughs> and I had friends from college who contacted me and said, we have a flat in the Castro. Someone just moved out. There's an empty room. You should come. And so in the summer of 85, I kind of, almost like my move to New York, I kind of impulsively moved to San Francisco right into the Castro and really what was, it was a joyous time, absolutely, but also a frightening time. It was really ground zero of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I, I remember that time sure. because um, that was around the time I used to go to the Castro and I'm a little older than you and I would go to the Castro and I would see the same people and somewhere in that period, pretty much everyone, almost everyone, vanished. Yeah. New sets of people came in and you wondered what happened and you kind of knew mm -hmm. and it was very depressing. Yeah. You know, a number of people have commented on um, Insomniac City, the new book, how it's bookended by loss or grief. The book opens with a chapter on losing Steve and that very sudden death and then it closes with the death of Oliver Sacks, my partner of, of six years so the book does examine grief and loss. For me, it's grief is uh, a part of life, and our discussion about the AIDS epidemic um, reminds me of that. It's you know that early experience of losing friends and coworkers and neighbors and people, young men, particularly young gay men, so suddenly. I, I agree, I remember that feeling of people vanishing, of, of people disappearing almost overnight was so frightening, but it had such an indelible impact on me as a young person, a young man, a young writer. So loss or grief has been such a part of my entire life from, from those early years onto the present. At the same time, I think Insomniac City is very much a book about life and enjoying life. I want to ask you one more question about Sleep Demons, yeah, and then, then I'm going to come right back to this. What prompted you to actually put together a book? How did that happen? I was, as I said, working at various nonprofits and working on essays, personal essays. That was the form. I loved Joan Didion, Susan Sontag, writers working on in that kind of um, writing, that kind of essays. And uh, on various subjects, at one point I wrote a piece about being an insomniac, and it was called The Insomniac. And in those days, everything was snail mail. I remember sending it off to the New York Times Magazine, hoping they might pluck it out of a slush pile. And sure enough, they did. It was several months later, but I got a call that the New York Times Magazine wanted to run this short piece. It was like 900 words about being an insomniac. It was the first kind of big publication I'd ever had. And it got a little bit of attention. And some agents came around inquiring. And it was then that I began thinking... I wonder if I could write a whole book on this topic. It took time for the book concept really to f come together and for, for me to flesh it out. It ended up being a memoir about insomnia. I'd had trouble sleeping my whole life, but also a look at the history of sleep science. So it weaves back and forth between the two. And that kind of weaving or braiding structure is um, typical of all your books. It is, it is, including yeah. Insomniac City. Getting back to what you were talking about, about the balance between, at the beginning, Steve dies, the end, mm -hmm. Oliver does. But the difference is Steve was younger than you, and you expected a full life together. Right. When you start dating somebody, being with someone 30 years older than you, who was in his 70s at the time, you know that 
just from an actuarial point of view, you're going to outlive him. Well, yes. Um, yes and no. <laughs> Let me also say that, you know, seeing someone who was younger than me, Steve, die unexpectedly before my eyes, also, you know, that has quite an impact on one's sense of one's own mortality. So it's true that I knew Oliver was older and that the likelihood would be that he would go first. But I also felt like, you know, chances are it could also be me. Who knows? I could get hit by a truck. I could get cancer. You know, certainly I've known people my own age or younger who did. So I think that infused our life together, my life with Oliver, with that kind of appreciation and gratitude for the life and the love that we had. Yes, of course, I knew the reality that he was older and that things could happen. And indeed, even before his terminal cancer, he did have various health problems. Well, he couldn't see well. He, he couldn't, couldn't hear see, well. He could not see well. He'd lost sight in one eye from the cancer from 10 years before. He was quite deaf. He also had orthopedic problems, as elderly people do. Had to have a knee replaced. He broke a hip, that sort of thing. So we had, you know, we went through a lot of different things together as well before his cancer diagnosis in 2015. But getting back to your point, yeah, it's it's true. But I think that sense that I had of one's own mortality and Oliver's as as a man in his late 70s who'd lived a long life and then found love at the end of it infused our life and hopefully permeates this book with a sense of joy. There's one other element too, which is mm -hmm. that after what you had gone through and knowing that he was older, at a certain point there's got to be a tendency to almost change the way you view the world and see it rather than a future and a past as the moment that you're in. Well, very nicely said. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, when I wrote Insomniac City or finished it, I realized in a way it's a story about reinvention, about my moving to New York in my late 40s and sort of reinventing myself as a New Yorker, as a photographer uh, with a different life there. But it was only later that I realized the book is also about Oliver Sacks' reinvention, um, reinventing himself in his late 70s by embracing a relationship and falling in love and exploring love and pleasure. You know, there are many passages in this book where you see Oliver kind of interrogating the subject of pleasure. It was something that really interested him, pleasure and joy and happiness. Well, for him, the transformation being in a relationship, the scientist in him would have looked at it and gone, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Does that make sense? For sure. And he did kind of approach it clinically, you know, as if he was clinically analyzing this experience, this phenomenon, as he did so brilliantly with his patients too. But here it was, the case was his own and the subject was love. So you see that in the book. One thing that's not in Insomniac City, but is on your website, Oliver was mostly apolitical, mm. except toward the end when he marches with Black Lives Matter, which means something was changing in him there, too. For sure. You're right. That's an episode that did not make it into the book, and, and we can talk about that. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. It was the fall of 2014, so before he got his diagnosis, and there was a Black Lives Matter march in New York City that was going through the West Village, and... We heard it from the apartment. We heard it out the window. He said at once to me, we should join them. We should be with them. He felt very strongly about that and that movement and about the horrible 
police brutality and violence against, especially against African-American men. But by the time we got our coats on and got outside, the march had already passed. And so we went back inside, sort of sad, got back to the apartment, and then we heard it come again. And um, by that time, we made it out to the sidewalk and joined the march and, and walked with people toward Union Square. What do you think that was that changed him that way? Because we look at the politics of today, and it sounds as if if he were around, he might have tried to insist that you guys go to Washington for the uh, Women's March. (laughs) I wouldn't have been surprised if he would have. You're right that for much of his life, he probably described himself as apolitical. He never did become an American citizen. But I, I saw a change in him in the time that I was with him. Part of this was getting more comfortable with himself and a little less shy, maybe a little more comfortable in that kind of public setting. That's something that took time. And I think, you know, being with someone like me who could encourage him and say, yeah, let's go. Absolutely. Let's get our coat on and and I'll help you. You know, he walked with a cane. So it was important that I be there just to help steady him. This is going to sound weird, but it's almost as if what you did was you triggered the awakening that he triggered in other people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thank you for that. I don't know if I can take credit for that, but there was an awakening for both of us. He also awakened so much in me and my own knowledge and curiosity about subjects I would never have considered before meeting Oliver Sacks. And also, as we said, awakened and really encouraged my photography, which is culminating in this book that comes out next year. He died, and obviously there's a certain grief, a Mm -hmm. lot of it, but it's a different kind of grief. Mm -hmm. Is that right? You're right. You are right. It is a different kind. I've had two major losses in my life, both Steve and Oliver, but they were very different. With Steve, again, a younger man, something so unexpected and kind of a traumatic death before my eyes. With Oliver, as he expressed so eloquently in his final suite of essays for the New York Times, he was an older man. He'd lived quite an amazing life. There was a real feeling of accomplishment for what he had done and for the relationship he had with his readers. And we had time. It was, of course, shattering for him to get a terminal cancer diagnosis and a prognosis of as little as six months. But I remember saying to him that first weekend after he got the diagnosis, even if this was all we had the past three days, this is more than I'd had before, and this is enough time to say to each other how we feel. So those last seven months of his life were not only very prolific in terms of his own writing and work, and prolific for me as well, for my photography, but gave the two of us that time together that is sometimes stolen from people or that others, other couples or other families, other people don't have. So that was a gift, and it made the grief of losing him, yes, in a certain way, easier. I still miss him every single day, but it's, there's a different sense of, there was a feeling of resolution. What's the origin of the River of Consciousness book? The River of Consciousness is a book, a collection of essays around the theme of science, pieces he had written over the past 20 years, and a a book that he had planned and been thinking about for a long time, but Oliver was always juggling many different projects, and sometimes would get distracted and pull off in one direction. So I think that as early as the mid, um, like 2008 or so, he was thinking about this book, The River of Consciousness, 
and then he wrote Musicophilia, and then he wrote The Mind's Eye, and then he wrote Hallucinations, and then an autobiography, all the while writing pieces around these topics of evolution, time, memory, consciousness. And um, in the last month of his life, he really began organizing the contents of the book, rereading pieces he'd written, editing, updating, and leaving instructions for those of us who would co-edit about what he wanted. But he titled it, he um, organized the contents and, and dedicated it to his friend Bob Silvers, who was the editor of the New York Review of Books. Were these previously in books? Most of them were previously published in magazines, in mostly in the New York Review of Books. One in the New Yorker, and then there is one piece that was never published before. There were actually four co-editors, with Oliver Sacks being one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's a very nice way to put it. Absolutely. Why was the Black Lives Matter story not in Insomniac City? Well, there's a really simple sort of technical reason. I decided to chronicle our relationship in Insomniac City through this journal I had kept over the years, a journal that grew to about 700 pages, and then I just took out excerpts to put into the book. And a kind of a rule that I made for myself was that I would only use material that was in the journal. And that if it wasn't in the journal, I couldn't just make it up. I couldn't just say November 2014 and then write a passage. So everything you see in there is, was written in real time. As it happened, that experience or episode with the march, I didn't happen to write down in my journal. It was only later, a year after his death, that I thought, God, I should really tell that story. That was such a great story, and it said so much about Oliver. So I wrote it as an essay that was published in the Times on uh, the first anniversary of his death. Is the same true also of Oliver Sacks' day at Julius, mm -hmm. a bar that I was shocked is still around? Mm -hmm. Julius is still there. Again, that was one of those things. And there, there are so many stories with Oliver that are not in the book. Hopefully, I... I have the, some of the very best ones. But yeah, there was an Oliver Sacks night at a gay bar in New York called Julius in the Village. It's one of the oldest in New York City, if not the oldest. Well, it was advertised as that way when I first came out. And I would go down the block to the Ninth Circle, which was long gone. So I remember that bar, yeah. So we were in a bookstore, a wonderful bookstore in New York called Three Lives and Company. And one of the booksellers said, Dr. Sachs, are you going to Oliver Sacks night? At Julius, and we both looked at each other like, Oliver Sacks night at Julius, what, what are you talking about? And he explained it was a kind of themed night or themed party, and they used for the poster the image from the cover of his autobiography, On the Move, of a very handsome, hunky Oliver Sacks. So he said, why not? Let's go. You know, this was a man who years before was so private about his sexuality and being gay that he would never have dreamed of doing that. But by then, why not? So we went and had a wonderful time. Bill Hayes, now you've got River of Consciousness by Oliver Sacks. You've got Insomniac City. You've got How New York Breaks Your Heart, the photography book. <laughs> You're also working on a history of exercise? I am. This is a, a book I've sort of long delayed book I've been working on for years. It's called Sweat. It's a history of exercise. And I'm uh, tracing the history of exercise from ancient Greece and Rome up through the present day. I am back at work on it and um, look forward to bringing that out. I should also mention we've talked about sleep demons, and I'm really happy to say it's that sleep demons is coming out in a new edition in February with a new preface written by me. 
from the University of Chicago Press. It's been out of print for years, so it's, it's going to be nice to have it back in print. Has anybody approached you about any of these books as films? No, not yet. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>